This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another exciting episode of Literary Treks, your official Star Trek books and comics podcast here on the Trek FM network. This is episode number 308 and I am one of your hosts, Bruce Gibson, and with me as he always is and will always continue to be is Dan Gunther. Dan, how you doing? (laughs) Hey Bruce, Uh, kind of a bittersweet morning here. Um, because, you know, this is it. This is it. This is, oh, you just reminded me. This is our last time on Literary Tracks. I'm glad you remembered. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And anybody who has probably heard this on previous episodes, and if you haven't, yes, we're leaving Literary Tracks. This is our last episode. Uh, Literary Tracks will continue on. And the former hosts... Chris Jones and Matt Rushing will be returning. So the show will continue on. We decided just to continue on to do something else of our own show called Positively Trek, which also includes books and comics. Definitely. Or at least it will very soon. So, uh, yeah, we're really excited about this in the episode that drops just two days after this comes out. So on Tuesday, uh, we'll have an episode kind of announcing th- what we're doing with the books and comics in the podcast uh, for Positively Trek. We have a few ideas. Haven't quite nailed down the name exactly yet for the book type episodes, but I'm really excited about it. We will definitely continue to talk about the books and comics because, uh, you know, I've heard some from some people and they enjoy us doing that. So ask and ye shall receive. Yeah, Positively Trek isn't just about books and comics, but it's going to be a big part of that show. It's just everything Star Trek, but the books and comics do hold a lot of weight. So we just had a recent episode with Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore on. So there's And it wasn't covering a book, but we have a great relationship with the authors and they have all bought into this new podcast that we're doing. And they're going to be joining us quite often to talk about everything Star Trek. So you won't just get their perspective on their books, but perspective on other things Star Trek. Absolutely. You know, that discussion was a lot of fun. And and like you say, the books and comics discussions will still happen here on Literary Treks as well with Matt and Chris. And, 
you know, I was a fan of Literary Treks back when they were hosts, and I look forward to continuing to listen when they come back. And real quick, I'm going to play a clip of me suggesting a show like Literary Treks for Trek FM that Chris Jones read on an episode of The Ready Room. And well, anyway, so thanks for that, Christopher. And also Hunter Rex uh, left us a review as well. And uh, Hunter said that one thing he would like to see us talk about in the show is books a little bit more and suggested that maybe we could do like a monthly or a quarterly show that just focused on the books. So, you know, at some point we might find, um, I've actually interested for Trek FM of doing a dedicated books podcast. Um, I've thought about it now for most of the year. If I ever find anyone who is versed well enough in the books to, to make it a show where we can have a really meaningful, intelligent discussion about what happened in the books, then by all means, it's something that we may launch at some point. That's really cool. I, I, I've heard you tell that story, but I've not heard that before. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. So everybody, it's because of me that literary <laughs> tracks exist. <laughs> no, not really. No, I just want them to call, uh, cover the books on the ready room. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, my iTunes username at that time, and I think still is Hunter Rex. And just so you know, as a little sneak peek, we will be covering the classic Star Trek original series novel, Strangers from the Sky, as our first book review on Positively Trek, and the author, Margaret Wander Banana, will be joining us on that episode. Plus, we have episodes following that with David Mack, and well, I can't give all the stuff away, but there's a lot going on over there. But yeah, join us over at Positively Trek. Stay here on Literary Treks because you know what? You don't get enough podcasting about Star Trek books, so you need more. Here, here, the more the merrier. So that being said, let's go on to a comic. You know, I'm so glad we have a comic for today's episode because I I would want to do a comic and a novel on our last episode of Literary Treks. Yeah, for sure. It's always special to do a comic and a book that just feels like literary treks to me. So, you know, this feels like it's going to be just a really good traditional regular episode of the show, which is how I want to leave. Definitely. So the comic that we have is the first issue of a miniseries called Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Too Long a Sacrifice. This is the first Deep Space Nine comic series that we've had in what, a decade yeah, I think the, the advertising copy for this said over a decade. So I, I can't remember exactly what the last Deep Space Nine only comic would have been, but it was quite a while ago. And this is a four issue miniseries and it centers around Odo, but it starts off with Bashir and Garrick. And I have to say, going into this, I like the pacing of this comic. It feels like an episode, but not just feel like an episode, but again, just the pacing. Like sometimes when you read comics, it jumps from one thing to another pretty quickly because they only have so many pages to tell the story in, but this is allowing it to breathe. For example, we're spending the first page, just Bashir and Garrick saying hi to each other. Mm -hmm. And then like the first three pages is their uh, lunch at this restaurant before you know, we get thrust into the action of the comics. So yeah, it's nicely paced. It feels like you said, like the beginning of an episode. And 
I have to say also, as soon as I saw that it starts with Bashir and Garrick, I was like, I'm going to love this because that is one of my favorite things about Deep Space Nine is those two characters and their relationship. And you really get a sense of that relationship as they're sitting down to have lunch and they're just chit-chatting about whatever. And yeah, you could complain and say, well, gee, not much is happening in the first several pages, but knowing that it's a miniseries and you're really just starting a long story arc, you have the time to spend and just dwell on what these characters are doing until all of a sudden a big surprise happens. Yeah. So we get a huge explosion on the promenade and this is, you know, something that we've seen before in deep space nine, there's the bombing of uh, Keiko's school in season one, uh, Garrick's shop blowing up in season three. So man, the promenade of deep space nine, not the safest place. I, I don't know that I'd be having lunch there too often. No, I, I wouldn't either. And ha- we've never heard of this restaurant before. Have we? I don't think so. No, this is a, an invention for the comic. Uh, this restaurant owned and operated by this Bajoran woman. Okay, that's what I thought, because I wasn't familiar with it. And I just thought, well, if anybody knows that this has shown up somewhere before, it would be Dan. So <laughs> <laughs> I know they've mentioned like random restaurants and stuff on the promenade that we don't see because, you know, the the on the TV show, the promenade is a huge set, but it's also implied that it goes all the way around and we don't see that back half of the promenade. So, you know, there, there could be all sorts of shops and restaurants and stuff back there. In my head, Kenan, there's a Shake Shack around the corner. Oh, totally. Yeah. I'd love to go to that. So and, uh, uh, Walden books. And <laughs> <laughs> I wish <laughs> I missed that. That's how I started reading Star Trek books. It was the first one I picked up was that in Walden books mm. memories. But anyway, uh, after this explosion, so, of course, we know Bashir doesn't die, but there's a panel here where Bashir is out and blood is just coming out of his, I guess, his mouth and nose. And I thought, oh, my gosh, is this a setup, like some kind of scheme that they're pretending Bashir's dead or something? But he's fine. But, yeah, for a moment there, I thought they killed him off. And interestingly enough, they have it so that Garrick kind of throws himself on top of Bashir and saves him, basically, is kind of what they're implying later as well. Yeah. So... That's interesting. I love that kind of relationship again. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Do we see Garrick again in the comic? Is he in rough shape? I'm not. I can't remember here. I remember him being in sickbay. Okay, so he could be in pretty rough shape as well at this point. I think he is. Well, we'll get to that here in a moment, I guess. But I think I remember him being in sickbay because I think Bashir says he's he's pulling through. But anyway, let's. So, yeah, the bomb happens, and now we jump ahead to see Odo, Dax, and O'Brien investigating uh, the damage and figuring out what happened here. And Odo even gives his investigators notes, which I'm not as good at this as you are, Dan. I'm putting you on the spot several times here, but it's start date 51636.5. I'm going to guess this is season five or six. I think it's season six, um, not because of the star date. I that's a I hmm. I'd have to double check, but I know they're in the middle of the Dominion War, which started at the start of season six, and uh, Dax is still Jadzia, so it's not season seven. 
Yeah, it probably is season six then. Yeah, yeah, because the Dominion War does have play in this because there's speculation. Does this have anything with the, to do with the Dominion? Yeah, mm-hmm. which I mean, I guess they were in a state of kind of Cold War in season five as well, so it could be season five. But the actual hostilities broke out in season six. So, uh, so I'm not going to get too in the weeds on this, but essentially, there's just a lot of discussion of what could have happened, who did what, could it be Quark, could it be wow somebody else but here's the thing that really gets to me about this comic in a lot of ways is the woman who runs the restaurant thinks it's quark and i mean she is terrifying i'll just put it that way (laughs) like her expressions of them saying you know well what odo's questioning her so what do you know what who do you think it was and she's like i know exactly who did this and then she's like screaming and her hands are up and her eyes are bulging and she says it was quark and i'm like oh my gosh she's gonna like strangle odo yeah and i mean yeah that that shot is terrifying uh, and they do say she's, you know, in a state of shock and, and this sort of thing, but she seems pretty adamant that it's Quark. <laughs> yes, and, she uh, does. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I do want to comment on the art style. Like, it's very, you know, like, noir style, this this kind of gumshoe type of style. And I, I think it's an interesting choice for this. I, I've seen online some people loving the art style and some people criticizing it. I, I think it really works for this story. And yeah, this particular panel, though, I don't know. She is definitely crazed. (laughs) It's a little much to me. And even the following panels, it's like she's just screaming. Uh, It's a little much, but maybe she is just off the wall, freaked out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And as a side note, I did just look up. So Stardate 51000 is the sixth season of Deep Space Nine. There you go. So now we're in the infirmary scene, and I'm just kind of looking through this, and I'm not seeing anything about Garrick. I was thinking we got some reference to Garrick in here, that he was doing fine or something. But, oh, here, uh, Dax says, Julian, how's Garrick? He says, oh, he's fine. A few bumps and scratches. He saved my life, you know. The way okay. he pulled me out of there. But we don't see him. See, now you got me curious that there's something behind this that Garrick is has something to do with this yeah and i mean not to jump too far ahead but one of the covers of one of the upcoming issues i can't remember which one features garrick so he's going to have a bigger role in this story what that is i don't know but yeah he's there's more to him than meets the eye as usual (laughs) well bashir finds out from one of the bodies that there are some explosive shells of rodinium darts in this bomb that exploded and so you know obviously they're trying to kill people with these darts yeah they're kind of designed to like cause maximum damage uh to i think bashir says shred tissue uh with maximum damage when it explodes so this is a nasty bomb and the question is like how did these get on the station and they should have been detected by the cargo scanners apparently Uh, so there's a kind of interesting thread that i think we're going to learn more about as well so we need to find out who did this. We need to solve the mystery. And Cisco is quick to point out to Odo that he's getting a lot of crap from the Ferengi ambassador and from 
the Benzite president in exile and the Nasigans and so on and so forth, because there were many of them, they were there in the restaurant that were killed. And then we get to a scene here where Odo's back in his little office there and Worf comes in and Worf starts basically questioning Odo's ability to handle this case and should go ahead and just arrest the Nosigans because that's just, this is the kind of thing that Nosigans would do. So Odo, just, just arrest them. This is the one part of the comic that I have a problem with as far as characters and story go. Like that seems out of character for Worf, especially at this point in his life. Like he doesn't, if he has evidence, he doesn't present it to Odo. Like he just says, oh, they're thugs. They're, they're the kind of people that do this. So it must be them. Yeah, that was the one problem I had with this too, because having been a security chief on the Enterprise and serving in Starfleet as long as he has, he wouldn't be the type that just says, well, then if something happens, I just think it's going to be the Nossians. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I would think he would investigate or at least come to Odo and say, I don't think you're investigating this enough, or maybe you're, I think you need to question the Nossigans more than you are. Mm-hmm. But he just actually comes to the conclusion that, oh, it's it's the Nosigans. And he even says, clearly the Nosigans are responsible. Yeah. And he's even kind of learned this lesson with Odo before. Like one of the first episodes he was on in season four, he's questioning Odo's investigation techniques and, you know, basically derails one of Odo's investigations because he assumes that the constable can't handle it or something. And, you know, he kind of learns the lesson that like, oh, things are handled differently on the station than they were on the Enterprise, and I need to butt out and focus on my duties. Uh, he seems to have not taken that lesson to heart at this point for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I, in some ways I think, well, maybe it's not so much that he thinks they're the actual ones, but they're the more likely ones, and he, so Otis should be doing more about it. I, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But then the Nosigans show up. And so then they get into a fight with Worf. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, the Nausicans, of course, lost two fellow countrymen as well in this explosion. And they're concerned and they want Odo to expedite his investigation. And it seems like they're going to turn to vigilantism if Odo isn't able to produce results. So they're motivated to find who did this as well. Yes, and then we get a call from O'Brien, says, Odo, you might want to check this out. And then we fast forward, and there's a scene between Quark and Odo, and Quark walks in, you want to see me, Odo? And he's like, yes, Quark, come here. And all of a sudden, he's like, look, we found these rodinium darts in your cargo. That has been delivered to Quark. So now now Quark is under suspicion as being the one who set off the bomb. With the to be continued. To be continued. With Quark going, what? Yeah, Quark <laughs> seems genuinely surprised at this. So I'm I'm sure this is a red herring, but it's one that we're going to, uh, you know, he's going to be a suspect going forward for sure. Yeah, we know it's not Quark. Quark is not that bad of a guy. Come on. Exactly. And if he did this, he wouldn't be in the show anymore after he'd be in prison for exactly ever. So, yeah. So, yeah. So to be continued. So, uh, yeah, um, I'm sure that Chris and Matt will pick up on the next issue when that comes out here on the show. And I know Dan and I are planning to do all four issues as one episode. So we'll cover the whole story as a whole on a future episode of Positively Trek. So, yeah, get the comic. I think I'm getting good vibes from this. And if you want more Star Trek Deep Space Nine comic, we need to get a lot of people buying this comic to show that sales are up and that people want Deep Space Nine. 
absolutely definitely so get out there grab this comic it's worth it too like it's we're not just telling you to buy it to get the sales up it's an interesting story and i think it's going to go some really cool places so Okay, well, let's go to a really cool and wet place with our feature where we talk about the novel Star Trek Titan Over a Torrent Sea. So I read this book when it first came out, which I think was 2009. Yes, I'm looking at the book right now. So Star Trek Titan Over a Torrent Sea by Christopher L. Bennett. And I haven't picked it up since then. So this is my second read. I think this is the same for you too, Dan. Yeah, this is my second read. My first one was back when it first came out. Uh, I I told you, I mentioned this on the other side of the page. When it first came out, I was really excited for it, like more so than like a normal novel would normally generate because it was billed as like the follow-up to Star Trek Destiny in Star Trek Titan. So uh, I was really excited to see this whole new world after the Destiny trilogy. Yeah, I'm reading the back uh, summary. It says, as the Federation recovers from a devastating events of Star Trek Destiny. It's not what you're saying in the promotions, but it definitely calls out Destiny in the first line there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it has a little play with Destiny in here, but uh, not a lot. Uh, so, Star Trek Titan, Dan, what do you think overall about the Star Trek Titan series? I've long been a big fan of this series. I think the ship is interesting, the crew dynamic. I love the diverse crew with all these different people from different worlds, you know, exploring that kind of alien diversity more so than Star Trek usually does. I've always loved Titan. Yeah, me too. When I saw Nemesis uh, and they said that Captain Riker was going to take over the Titan, I was like, ooh, there we go. Let's get some novels on that. And we did. (laughs) They delivered. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I like the approach of the diversity of different species on the ship, which really is what you should expect to see on Star Trek. It's just the budget doesn't allow for that when they make the shows. Yeah, exactly. So we start this one off with a deep space mission where Riker is being sent with the Titan to an exploratory mission into a realm of space that they have done some exploring in before but now they need to do more of and admiral mask is sending them out on this and Riker's like but hey you know with everything that just happened with the borg and all the devastation and there's all these recovery efforts we want to be here for that we want to be able to help and the admiral points out well we also need to show people that starfleet's going to continue their mission of exploration and we need the titan to be the flagship of that. I mean, there's going to be other ships out there doing this too, but you know, we need to show people that we, you know, move on and we're going to continue that mission of exploration. Mm -hmm. And they're also kind of painted into a corner too, because president Baco called out the Titan by name in like her big speech, like we'll be continuing our missions of exploration, including the USS Titan, blah, blah, blah. So they're kind of, they kind of don't really have a choice, but I, I kind of get, the arguments from both sides here. Like if I was in Riker's position, I'd want in, you know, know, the place where I had lived had been brutally attacked and was reeling from these devastating losses. I'd want to stick around and do as much as I could to help out as well. But at the same time, this kind of public relations side of Starfleet, not to mention the actual benefits of getting out there and exploring. I think those are really important as well. I like that they're taking this approach because it's not as if Starfleet stops doing what Starfleet always does. And all they're doing is focusing on recovery. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the galaxy 
yeah, the galaxy needs them. But at the same time, we also have to continue on with our missions. The impression I've gotten from Star Trek Picard, the last best hope was Starfleet did the opposite of this and really just focused on everything that was going on in Mars and Romulus and, and Starfleet had to kind of abandon their mission for a while of exploration. It would be good if there was some effort in that, even though it's not the full fleet, but part of the fleet still doing that. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, when something devastating like this happens, it's easy to turn insular and, and lick your wounds. But I think, yeah, it is important to maintain those, activities that make your make starfleet what it is and that's also the approach of the publisher <laughs> they're like well all the star trek books can't just be about the borg and the recovery <laughs> you know exactly. we need books of exploration <laughs> so we need classic star trek stories too so that's part of it also so the titan now goes to this planet that is all ocean so large ocean planets even bigger than earth and it's like just ton of ocean like if you if you like the sea this is your planet go go check it out (laughs) they think it's uninhabited they don't think there's any intelligent life forms on it but then when they get there they begin to realize that this planet does have these little islets out there little small islands floating around just not stationary they can float around and then they realize that the planet supports a complex ecosystem of intelligent beings known as the squales now, the planet is called Droplet, and these beings are called squales because that's the term that the crew gives them. And squales is like, uh, it's squid and whales combined into one because these beings look like small whales or large dolphins, and they have these tentacles, like four tentacles in the front of them, and they can change color to adapt to their environments and such. So, Dan, what do you think of the planet and the squales? So... This is one thing that Christopher Bennett does with this novel is he really digs in deep into this planet and how it works and all of these aliens. And it's fascinating. There's there's some really interesting things here. I do like how much thought and work he's put into creating this planet. The squales and, and the other creatures in this ecosystem, at first, they're really fascinating because they're so unknown and so alien to the crew and there's really no way to relate to them for example for a good part of the book they don't even know that the squales are intelligent i think we could kind of infer reading this that they'll probably turn out to be because it's a star trek novel but you know for for a while they think like oh these are just sea creatures that aren't that aren't exhibiting intelligence we're just going to kind of explore the planet and do what we want here uh, without a lot of regard to maybe how they're interacting with these people, because it turns out they are a people. So the prime directive should probably come into play here. Yes, certainly it does. But uh, I thought it was interesting also the fact with technology that when they see our crew members using anything from a tricorder to just their comm badge, that it's something they're afraid of and they're not familiar with because there's not really any metals on this planet. Uh, It's just all water. And the 
squales have their own form of technology, which they're able to do with bioengineering. So they're able to take other creatures in the sea and kind of use them for their own technological purposes. I thought that was very fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it. Like there's no inanimate material on this planet other than the water. Like the water would be the only thing that's not like a biological thing because uh, it's water all the way down. There's no like mantle other than the, the ice seven, they call it, which is, you know, water that's compressed so hard under pressure that it turns into a solid. Not that it's cold. It's actually extremely hot, but it becomes a solid. There's no like rocky part of this planet or anything like that. Everything is biological. So, you know, seeing plastics and metals and things like that would be really strange to them. If only we had a being on the ship that was somehow aquatic, that maybe could relate to them and go into the sea and, oh, wait, we do. Ensign Ailey Levina. Of course, she can do it. She's a Selkie. She's from a planet of similar, an ocean planet. So it totally makes sense. She's a flight controller on the Titan, and uh, she's from Pacifica. So, and even her quarters are filled with ocean water. So when she's walking around the ship, she has to wear a aquatic hydro suit so that she can still live and breathe. She can be out of water temporarily for small periods of time, but she does need to have moisture and water in order to survive. So it makes sense that then she's on this mission where she can go into the ocean and swim freely around, uh, which Christopher Bennett points out a lot of times that she's naked doing this. And she's even on the cover. This is the first cover we have a naked woman on it, but she's a Selkie, so you're not going to be offended. But she (laughs) finds a way to communicate with the squales and build trust with a pod of them. Pods are like, it's almost like different departments on the starship. They would be called pods if they were run by squales. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is really cool character. I I always likened her ability to kind of be out of the water for short periods of time, similar to like people holding their breath underwater. Like it's kind of, she has to keep her gills hydrated basically. Uh, But she can, like you said, be out of the water for short periods of time. I, I think this is a really interesting character. I like also that she has a bit of a, a past with Riker that we'll find out a little bit more about later in the novel. And the fact that she's an aquatic creature, like you said, is makes her very well suited to this mission. And she's even able, like you say, to communicate with them. She teaches them a little bit of the Selkie language and she learns a little bit of the Squail language and they're more easily able to communicate on that level. Yeah, really, she's, I would say, the main character of this book for mm-hmm. the most part. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of it through her eyes and dealing with these creatures and going under the sea and under the sea i had the exact same thing go through my head as soon as i I don't know if you saw my head starting to bob (laughs) yeah this is the little mermaid (laughs) but she's so appropriate for this book and i have enjoyed her character enjoy her relationships with the rest of the crew and i guess i kind of want to just get into that piece of it is her relationship with the crew because a lot of it has to do also with the squales because she's that person in between the two she has to kind of mediate both sides in this whole situation because the squales feel like the titan is there to attack them 
or destroy them or do something because they're really not that familiar. I mean, these are aliens to the squales and they've never seen technology and they don't really know what they're doing there. And so there's not a real form of communication, nor so is the crew really that effective at communicating with them because they weren't expecting them to be intelligent life forms. And not to mention that, you know, the Titan's arrival does kind of herald a number of horrific events that happen on their planet that are, you know, some coincidental, some affected by what Titan does, but the effect on the planet is pretty brutal. So they don't see us as benign people just coming to check them out. Like at first, you know, they're maybe just curious and that sort of thing, but they do come to see the crew of the Titan and their arrival as a threat to their planet and their way of life. So yeah, we're starting to get into spoiler territory here, but that's pretty much the crux of the first part of the book, setting things up. And I talked about Levina's relationship with other people. Now, she has been sexually active with Riker from an earlier time before the Enterprise, before, I guess, he was with Troy. Well, maybe when he first met Troy, he may have had this relationship with Levina after he first met Troy before joining the Enterprise. I'm not sure. I would. I don't know. It was in the late 2350s. Mm-hmm. So uh, Riker and Lavena are on the planet together, and there was kind of this hurricane, severe weather event that they land stranded on a island or an islet, and then Riker is malnutritioned. He's not feeling well, but we start to find more and more about this previous sexual relationship that they had early on and of course now he's her captain and she's an ensign and so there's a weird dynamic here because she's also trying to help him and it's cold it's raining he's shivering and she's going to put her her naked body next to his because his clothes flew off during the severe weather and he's wearing like little leaves around his private parts there so it's like tarzan (laughs) and jane but uh <laughs> so uh you know he's like hey you know i'm married and i'm your captain and she's like but i'm here to help and it, so they had some arguments and stuff and i'm just wondering what do you think of this relationship and this setup between these two i think it's definitely an interesting dynamic it did definitely get awkward at times i think for the most part like there's one point where riker is severely malnourished and he's a little bit delirious and uh, you know, things come to a head a little bit with how they're talking to each other and stuff. But for the most part, they handled it like adults, which is definitely good to see. Uh, you know, it's a Christopher Bennett novel. He does have a very liberal attitude towards sex, which I actually really appreciate. I, I, I align with him a lot with regards to my outlook on sex and sexual relationships and that sort of thing. So, you know, I like that he's not afraid to explore these aspects of characters. Um, that said, I do think they handle it very adult for the most part, which is good. Yeah, because it really comes to play. It's not just about, oh, they had a sexual relationship, but it's the character development for Lavenna because the planet she's from, she did have children, but she would leave them behind. She was able to do that in her culture, but there's this feeling of guilt. And so as she's going and having sexual relationships with other people and other beings, uh, she's carrying guilt with her over it because as she's out doing this in the galaxy in her earlier years, she has this guilt of the fact that she's not raising her children and she doesn't even feel like she's even qualified to do it because her mother wasn't very good 
at being a mother. So yeah, in, in Selkie culture, it's very frowned upon what she was doing, basically, which was, you know, when they get older, they mature into a more aquatic phase. And at that point, yeah, you can go out and do kind of whatever you want. But in your younger amphibious stage, you are expected to have lots of children and raise them and that sort of thing and save that kind of behavior for later in your life. But she was, you know, sneaking off to the Federation embassy and sleeping with Starfleet officers and other people and even other Selkies around the planet, leaving her children behind in the care of other people and kind of abandoning her responsibilities, which is kind of a theme in her life that she will examine in this novel and kind of come to terms with a little bit. Yeah, she's, it's almost like she's running away from her society and hiding within Starfleet. And not mm-hmm. that she doesn't want to be there, but it is part of the reason why she's there. So yeah, we do start to discover more and more about her. And she also had a relationship with our chief engineer, Shin Rahavri, and he is now in a relationship with our science officer, Melora Pazlar. And these are the days of our lives. <laughs> it almost sounds like a soap opera to me. <laughs> yeah, the the relationship between Rahavre and Paslar is interesting in this novel as well, because uh, Rahavre, his culture, the Afrosians, they're very, um, at least the males are very sexual beings who kind of spread their seed far and wide, as the as the phrase would go. So he's not one to really commit to people but in the course of this novel he and Pazlar admit to each other that they love each other which is kind of a big step for him and uh, an interesting development that I didn't see coming at the time. No and they later talk about that saying hey you know we did say that we love each other but I don't know if I want a long term commitment or marriage or something and they're both in agreement like no that's not what we want let's just enjoy what we have and not really have to examine it just be in the moment. Mm-hmm. So it goes to that liberal sexual way of looking at things uh, that you're mentioning before because even with uh, Lavena around there's a little bit of awkwardness between the three, but then it just seems to be, it's okay, you know? And mm-hmm. everybody's like, it's okay that you've slept with this person and I've slept with that person or whatever. And this is just what it is now. Yeah. And there's even kind of an implication that what Rahavre and Pazlar have is kind of an open relationship as well. Yes. Uh, because there's still some active flirting with Lavena and uh, some hints that like, oh, we can go have fun. Even though Lavina says, basically, I don't want to get in the middle of this. It's obvious that Rahavre and Pazlar have some kind of thing going on that's a little deeper. I don't really want to interfere with this right now. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there's a respect there too. Mm -hmm. So speaking of relationships, of course, as we mentioned before, Riker's saying to Lavena, hey, you know, I'm married, I'm your captain. And of course, he's married to Deanna Troy. And they are pregnant right now, and Troy is back on Titan now going into labor. And Dr. Ree all of a sudden starts freaking out <laughs> in his Dr. Ree way. And he kidnaps Deanna and Nurse Agawa, and they go onto a shuttlecraft to protect the baby from any harm. And they just leave the Titan. Did I say the Enterprise earlier? I'm just curious. Oh, I, I did. If you did, I didn't notice. I don't know. Um, I just, for some reason in my mind, I thought, wait, did I say Enterprise? But anyway, but yeah, they're on the Titan. And so his instincts, 
kick in. He goes into guardian mode, which is very common in his species. And it's like, he's just in this, like, I've got to get her off the ship. I've got to get protect her or get her away from all this. And so they go to a planet called Lumbu and which is, they've never visited the planet for pre warp civilization. And he goes down and takes them into a hospital ward to birth this baby. What'd you think at this point? Yeah, it's interesting because, and and we kind of didn't get into why he left the ship exactly, but the Titan is heavily damaged and, and, you know, being, uh, very damaged by their efforts to divert this asteroid, which we haven't talked about, but we'll get there. I'm yeah, sure we'll get to the asteroid in a minute here. Yeah. But that's why Re feels that the Titan is unsafe right now. So he takes their, interestingly, Delta Flyer class shuttlecraft. Yeah. So, oh, that's kind of cool, uh, to this planet. Um, where he, yeah, he kidnaps them. He kidnaps Troy. Ogawa manages to get herself on the shuttle to go along with them. And they go to this planet, like you said. Now, this chapter that starts out with this planet, I was kind of like, what is going on? Who are these people? What's happening? And then, oh, this is okay. This is where Re is headed to. Um, this planet is really interesting. I kind of want more of an exploration of them. They're kind of a planet of philosophers. Yeah. So they like, they don't have a lot of physical confrontations with each other, but instead they kind of employ uh, philosophical arguments and, and that kind of thing. That was really interesting. Uh, they're also like half the size of a typical human. So they see these giants coming, one of whom is uh, pregnant and another of whom is a huge, huge giant. And, you know, to us looks like a dinosaur. <laughs> they must be just like wetting themselves. Like this is <laughs> the craziest thing to ever happen to this hospital. But they kind of handle themselves really well in this situation. They're not totally freaking out. I mean, they do a little, but they almost look yeah. at them as not gods, but beings from spirits or something. Yeah. yeah, And it's like, they're watching them and trying to learn lessons from them, you know, for their actions. It's like, Oh, okay. Well, they just treat life in a regular manner like we do. And we just need to cherry cherish life and continue to give birth. And so it's a weird, interesting dynamic. I really like this part. I, I agree with you. I'd almost like to explore this a little more. Like, maybe have another novel where they go back to the planet or yeah. something and for some other reason, but I, yeah, I'd like to know more. Yeah. There's some fun stuff there. Uh, I do like how, for example, when Troy does finally go into labor, the, uh, the nurses there are basically like, yeah, we'll help, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's what we do. We bring babies into the world. So yeah, we'll yep. help They're They're kind of game for it. And my absolute favorite bit is when you know tuvok and a team sent from titan catch up with them and they you know manage to take out a couple guards but this third guard that they hadn't noticed comes running up and is pointing a gun at them and tuvok just immediately starts arguing <laughs> philosophy with him yeah <laughs> he's like well that's an interesting perspective but have you considered that you know the unreality of all things means that blah blah whatever and i just love how quickly tuvok was able to go into that mode and i i totally heard tim russ's voice i don't know what it was about this section in particular but i was like oh that is tuvok and it just worked perfectly um basically he distracts him long enough for someone to come up behind him and hypospray the guard but 
you know, because this guard apparently is a little less philosophical than most of them. He's like, yeah, well, my wife doesn't think I'm very smart at this anyway or something. And like goes to shoot Tuvok. <laughs> That's a good point. I feel like the characters do sound like they're on screen counterparts, but Tuvok the most. I think yeah. he's really spot on. Especially because I feel like Bennett had a bit of a difficult task with Tuvok because for the first part of this novel he's very much not himself he's lost his son in the attack on Deneva by the Borg and he's very emotional you know which is not the norm for Tuvok and you know he's unsure of his emotions he's very emotional when it went around his wife and in talking to Deanna Troy about the issues going on and stuff, but he does find himself kind of in the course of this mission. And, you know, even though he was going through things that are very untuvok like, you know, for the first part of the, for the first part of the novel, he does still exude Tuvokness, <laughs> And, uh, I think even more so once he's himself at the end. Yeah. He's a very small part of this book compared to the other characters, but he has a big personal leap in it. So it, it, it does weigh heavy. And he's also very active in the scene where Deanna is delivering her baby. And he's pointing out to her and Dr. Ree that Dr. Ree's reacting this way. His instincts are kicking in, not just because what they suspected was the feelings that Tuvok was having along with Troy's concerns about her baby being magnified and Ree's instinct just going on overload, but also the fact that he realizes and points out to Troy that she has fear of Ree. And she's like, I don't feel Ree. And she's like, no. He, and Tuvok says, no, you do fear him because he wanted to terminate the baby. And mm -hmm. you fear that of him, even though he's here to save the baby, you still carry that fear that he once wanted to take the baby away and terminate until the Kaliar came in and saved the fetus. Yeah. And not to mention that during that novel in destiny, like from Troy's perspective, he attacks her, you know, yeah. he, he bites her to put her into kind of a protective coma type thing, but from her perspective, you know, he wanted to terminate the pregnancy and then like attacks and bites her, you know? So this is, yeah, she's, whether it's on a conscious level or not, she's terrified of him. And I can understand. I mean, of all the Star Trek doctors that we've seen, I mean, <laughs> Ree's not one of my favorites just because he, it's, he does really odd things like this. You never know what he's going to do. Thankfully, everybody's okay. It's just so different. But that's also the beauty of Titan is showing these different alien races and how we don't all do things the same way. The intentions may be good and work out and are helpful, but the approach is different. Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny because when we were reading Destiny, I thought that I remembered him doing more against troy yeah like i remember like did he didn't he kidnap her or something like i remembered the bite and all that stuff but i thought there was something else i didn't remember that it was in this novel that that happened so this is you know a pattern of behavior that is very troubling and i mean i know it's not entirely his fault he was picking up on the emotions from diana as well as which were exacerbated by tuvok but it's still like Man, I don't know. This this guy's 
not the most stable. And, you know, by the end, everything is resolved and he realizes what happens and he voluntarily puts himself into custody for, you know, violating the prime directive for one thing, but also, of course, kidnapping the first contact specialist and and chief counselor of the ship. Right. You know, he, he realizes that what he's done is wrong. So there's a bit of atonement there and presumably there'll be a hearing of some kind and he'll probably be let off. But, you know, I would, I don't know. And, and, and I, again, I don't know if that's my prejudice against him because he looks like a velociraptor though, too. Right. No, I know. It's hard to imagine going to a sick bay and seeing, a dinosaur in there. Yeah. It's going to be treating you. <laughs> it's kind of, it is a bit scary, but you know, you're right about, you know, what's going to happen to him next. And Riker is very clear at the end, like, yeah, you know, there's going to be a hearing. Yeah. We need to put you uh, in confinement, but you know, it's all going to work out. We're, we're, we, we got your back. Don't worry about it. You know, we got your scales. Don't worry about it. All right. <laughs> Just, you know, maybe stop biting and kidnapping counselors <laughs> <laughs> so as you mentioned before the shuttlecraft or the delta flyer type ship had to leave the titan because Reese being overprotective he's worried about troy because of the damage that the titan is experiencing from this asteroid that is hanging towards the planet now there's a lot of conversation in here is well is the asteroid going to hit or not and as it gets closer and closer it looks like the asteroid's going to hit but at the same time they're saying but the asteroid is not uncommon to this planet there's been other asteroids that hit this planet should we even get involved do we allow this to happen this is where we get into more of these prime directive discussions because does the titan need to attempt to divert or destroy this asteroid because the biosphere of Droplet will be severely damaged. It already has damage to it. So did they make the right decision? Did they cross the line? Yeah, this is one of those things that like, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. So by the end of the novel, we learn that there were unintended consequences and they probably did make the wrong decision initially here. But putting myself in the shoes of the crew of the Titan, you've just encountered this planet. You've encountered these people that you think are intelligent. There's this asteroid going to come and hit the planet. A strict interpretation of the prime direct directive would say that you don't do anything but at the same time like it would be hard to sit there and watch an asteroid hit a planet and kill potentially hundreds of thousands of these creatures and just do nothing just watch that happen and at the same time like how would that be perceived by those creatures as well so you know coincidentally this happens when the titan arrives but even after the fact, if it hits and kills all of these squales and they learn that the Titan was up there and could have done something, how would that then affect their relationship? So, you know, there's a lot of things to weigh here and I totally, you know, I I don't know what decision I would have made, but I totally understand the decision that they do make, which is to try and divert the, the asteroid at first and, and, you know, try and, veer it off so it doesn't hit the planet when they realize they can't do that they try and destroy it and uh but it does end up hitting anyway in kind of large chunks but because of the 
energies that they added to it, the nadion pulses from the phasers, as well as the antimatter explosions and quantum torpedoes, that energy gets absorbed by this lower layer of the ocean that kind of alters what the squales call the song of the planet, the magnetic field of the planet, which, uh, you know, throws life into unbalance and makes sea creatures aggressive and all this stuff that's disrupting them. So, you know, by the end, they learn that, oh my God, the thing that we did has, you know, possibly doomed this planet, but it would have been really hard not to do anything as well. So I, yeah, it's a, that's a tough one. It's the Kobayashi Maru, the no win mm-hmm. situation. Cause it seems no matter what they did, it's not going to help, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, it's like, I almost want to go to the squales and say, Hey, this is about to happen. I don't know if there's anything you want us to do. We could try to prevent this asteroid from hitting it. You know, we'll just probably break it up into smaller chunks and still hit the planet. But the squales weren't going to listen to them anyway. There's many times in this book that they don't know if they can trust them and really understand them. And at this point, there's no understanding. They have no way of communicating to that, that to them. They haven't made contact in that way. And they, and they do try, they put like a probe that emits a, you know, kind of thing that, that drives them away from where the asteroid's going to hit. But that's the, the own, like they have no way of speaking to them at this point, which is a problem as well. Yeah. And that probe that's trying to push them away and go somewhere else wasn't even that effective because once they broke up the asteroid, that location where the probe was isn't where the asteroid pieces were all hitting. They were going further out too. So yeah, uh, it's one of those difficult prime directive questions that we can debate probably all day about and You know, it's, yeah. Do you just let a planet get destroyed or damaged like that when you can possibly prevent it? I mean, they could have been successful at it. They could have saved them. I mean, they still live. The planet wasn't destroyed, but it was damaged and lives were lost. And Mm -hmm. yeah, then you got a question, okay, well, did we do more harm than good? Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the damage that they did cause could end up being a mass extinction and the end of the squale civilization they do find a way to kind of realign the magnetic field of the planet but of course now they've lost the confidence what little relationship they had with the squales has kind of gone because of you know the this coincidental <laughs> um impact they think, well, the Titan people are responsible for it. They showed up and that then this happened. And now all these things are going wrong, which actually kind of are the, the responsibility of the people from Titan. So, you know, there's no trust there whatsoever, even when the Titan crew is trying to fix things. Well, the crew does atone for their interference by ultimately saving the droplet biosphere, realigning the song, as you mentioned, emanating from the deaths by canceling out the effects of the energies used on the asteroid. So Lavenna has a big instrumental part in this in convincing the squales of Titan's good intentions. And she herself atones for her past actions and decides to stop running from her responsibilities. And this is a really great way to resolve everything and end this story. It's funny because at one point you kind of think that Lavena is going to stay with the squales because they have this way of altering biochemistry to allow people 
to allow her and Riker to become part of the the actual biosphere of the yeah, planet. Yeah, because they didn't know they would be rescued, and this was an option to them. They may have to stay there the rest of their lives. Exactly. And it almost feels like Levena is going to do it regardless. You know, which would, you know, I was kind of thinking like, oh man, this happens so much in Titan. Like we had the, the Bajoran guy stay behind it back in time on that one planet. I think they lost another crew member at some point, but I can't remember exactly where, but they stayed behind somewhere. I was like, is this just going to be a regular thing? They're going to find planets where all their crew can stay. But she does decide not to run from her responsibilities because initially joining Starfleet was her running from her responsibilities on her homeworld. And leaving that now would be just a furtherance of that. So she decides, no, I'm going to stay where I am. I'm going to do the difficult thing and be the Starfleet officer that I promised that I would be. So, you know, the Titan crew atones for their actions and saves the planet. And Levena kind of atones for her past transgressions and learns a valuable lesson about how she should act and, and where she belongs in the world. So we were talking on the other side of page about this, the thing about this novel, and we're getting closer now into our ratings, but the thing I didn't care for this novel is, I felt like sometimes like, there was too much exposition. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of world building, which is great. But there was times I felt like I was reading a science paper or some kind of science textbook. And it was just go on a little too much. So I, I was showing Dan earlier, I think it's page 241, where a paragraph is the whole page and bleeds into the next page. Sometimes <laughs> I thought so that was a little too much. So it would start to drag in the middle. But when we were talking before the show, Dan, you had said that you were kind of feeling that same way. But when we got to this point, it just really took off for you. Yeah. So Christopher Bennett tends to do this in his novels for me where like, I'm, I'm kind of getting bogged down in the middle of this. I'm, you know, it feels like you said, like a science textbook. He's, you know, if you read the acknowledgements at the end, the number of scientific papers and textbooks that he's drawing from to create this planet like on one level, it's it's incredibly impressive. Like he's put a ton of work into Absolutely. making this feel like a real place and, and it real, really works. Like, for example, and we were kind of joking, he, he cited all of these different scientific papers, including like, you know, a Star Trek novel that cites the paper numerical simulation of the mechanics of a yeast cell under high hydrostatic pressure from the Journal of Biomechanics, volume 37, issue seven. That's nuts. Like, <laughs> and that's just one of a ton of, of papers and books that he's citing here. That's just the, the title. Just, I, I love that. But, uh, you know, it's incredible the amount of research he's put in. And I feel like it's easy to kind of get lost in this book with that stuff. But by the end of the novel, the ending of this is just so beautiful and so moving and so touching. It got me like I'm, I'm, I'm not too proud to say that, you know, it sucked me in like where she's in the deep sound channel of this planet singing about her life experiences and what the Titan crew is trying to do. And, you know, all of these squales are joining her and there's like a, a group of security squales that are singing. Yeah, but I don't know because yeah. of this, but it's still all coming together in a beautiful harmony. And part of this really hit me because of, arguments online lately about like wearing masks or what people should do during the pandemic or 
Black Lives Matter and that kind of thing. And just beating my head against the wall in stupid online arguments with people who, you know, are not seeing my point of view. I'm certainly not seeing their point of view. And it's just this discordant, you know, argument. And this was like, well, this is an argument or a debate, but it's all coming together harmoniously. And it's just like, oh, man, why can't we have that on our world? And, uh, you know, I was getting a bit emotional with regards to this. And, and so to me, that really made up for where I was kind of getting lost in the middle. And I'm like, all is forgiven. I love this novel. You're talking about social media and I thought about Twitter and we do tweets <laughs> and I thought, how nice would it be to rebrand Twitter and make it more of a songbird? Yeah. <laughs> you know, as opposed to everybody just tweeting, let's come into harmony and create a song. We may have different opinions. We have different standpoints, but really understanding one another and blending that together into a song and just realizing, you know, there's got to be a core message in there, a core understanding, a core way of addressing how we need to handle things in the world that we're not always going to be on agreement, but there's a melody here that's going to take us to a result that will please most, if not everyone, you know, resolving mm -hmm. things. I always argue with a lot of people that I feel like we all want eventually the same thing. It's just how we get there. That's yeah. the difference, you know? Yeah. It definitely seems like that. And it, 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 it doesn't feel like that all the time, but I think there's a fundamental truth there that I think we would be a lot further ahead if we recognize that. Yeah. And always just be open to hear what other people say, because you may not agree, but there's things in there that may make you look at things a little differently. And we're always here to learn. Your learning never stops. So that being said, I wasn't expecting it to go into that, but that's really interesting. Now I appreciate the ending even more, Dan, because you've said all that. <laughs> So that being said, what are your final thoughts? What are your ratings for Over a Torrent Sea? Well, as I was saying, like, as I was reading this and kind of getting a little bit bogged down in the science, I was kind of leaning towards a three-star rating because I was just, you know, not feeling it and that kind of thing. And I think you mentioned having a similar experience where you'd read for a little bit and you just have to put it down and go do something else kind of thing because it was getting just a bit much. The way I read this novel meant that the day before we record this, I was kind of running out of time and I had about a hundred pages left to read. So I had to read that all kind of in a big chunk, a big stretch. And when I did that, something about this novel kind of became apparent to me. And, you know, A, of course, it has that wonderful ending that just grabs me. But B, even the technical stuff that came before that, I felt I was much more able to kind of get into and absorb as I read for longer because I had to, right? I was kind of forced to read longer. So it kind of sat better with me. And I feel like this is a novel that benefits from sticking with it and reading for long periods of time, even though it's structured in a way that makes that a little difficult, that makes that maybe a little bit more of a challenging read. But I think if you can read it in as big a chunks as possible and get through it as fast as possible. I think that's a rewarding way to read this novel because by the time I got to the end and with that beautiful ending, it definitely got pulled up a full star rating to a, a strong four for me. So I would say a strong four hydro probes that are fixing the mantle 
and re-energizing the biosphere of droplet. Very good. I'm, <laughs> I'm still debating on my rating. So I, I do enjoy this story going into this a second time. I do recall a lot that was in here that before going in the second time, I remembered a lot is what I'm trying to say. That's not always, always the case. Sometimes I pick up a book and I'm like, I don't really remember what this was about. I know I read it before, but I don't remember a lot of the details, but I do remember a lot of the details of this book going back into it almost a decade later. And then I'm thinking, but I also remember not really enjoying the book that much the first time I read it. So I started to get into this and I was really enjoying it. I was like, okay, I think I'm liking this better than I thought. And then when we got into somewhere in the middle, it started to drag for me. It was starting to really slow down and get into all the scientific explanation of things and all the world building, which I appreciate and I like, but I just felt like it got a little too much of that and it started to lose me. And at the same time, I was getting a little bored with it. And I think one reason also is I know there's been other Star Trek novels that have done this same type of thing, especially some earlier novels that I can think of. And those I would spend a lot of time reading sections like that and then maybe going and rereading it again before I went to the next chapter, just so I fully understood it. Because we do the show, there's a certain time limit. I have to kind of hurry up and get through these books. So I don't have that luxury. So a lot of times I was a little confused and I just didn't have time to go back and start rereading and digging in. But if that's something that you like, then I highly recommend this book. But for me, that kind of slowed things down. But I really appreciate the stories that we were talking about through here. And that being said, I think I'm going to stick with my original rating. And just like you said, you would give this a really strong four. I'll give this a really strong three on the verge of almost being four. So strong three out of five leaves that cover Riker's bum. Oh, I think we're going to need more than three there. So, but, uh, but I appreciate that. <laughs> Wait, you say he's got a big bum? <laughs> well, hopefully they're very big leaves. <laughs> very three out of five, very big leaves. <laughs> Cover his bum. Excellent. So one of the secrets about recording literary treks is this part right here where I'm speaking right now is always kind of the most dreaded thing each week where, you know, we alternate who's leading the episode each week, me or Bruce. And if the other person is leading, then I have to be the one that says the thing that comes out of what we just talked about and leads into the ending. And, you know, we kind of joke. It's usually a form of like, well, it's always great having one of the authors on or boy, that was an interesting discussion about or I'm really interested in this, you know, blah, 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 whatever. So, yeah, I just wanted to give you guys that insight that this is always one of the most difficult parts. But at the same time, knowing that this is the last time that I'm going to be doing one of these, I'm really sad and I'm going to miss it. So it's been a really interesting discussion this week talking about Over a Torrent Sea. And I really enjoyed having this talk with you, Bruce. I've enjoyed it too. It is a little bittersweet to be leaving literary tracks. I, 
don't really feel that sad about it only because I feel like it's continuing. We're just doing it in a different room, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. It's like, we're still going to be reviewing the books just like we just did. I know that I'm going to be able to sit here with Dan in the next couple of weeks and do another book. And then after that, another and another and still do the authors and do it, but, and even expand that even beyond the, what we've done here in literary treks. And that's exciting to me. So it doesn't feel like it's ending. Like I said, I just feel like we're taking it into a different room. Like, come over here and join us over here. So, Definitely. And I also want to thank the listeners for tuning into the show and supporting us and being great listeners. I've never received any negative feedbacks. I've never dealt with anybody who was being a jerk to me about any of this. I mean, it's been very supportive. And the thing about it is I know that any of you who are listening to this, it's because you love the books just like we do. Or you love Star Trek, you just don't have time to read the books or maybe not interested, but you kind of want to know what's going on. And I so appreciate that. We're all one big Star Trek family. And I love that. And I wish you would continue on with us at the other show and continue here on Literary Treks. And I was a big fan of this podcast from the very beginning when it started, and I'll continue to be a fan of it afterwards. And whether it's Chris and Matt or any other future hosts, it's a great platform and library of reviews of books and comics that we will have forever. And so I want to thank you, Dan, and everybody else listening for everything you've done and the support. And I have really enjoyed this journey. Ditto. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I agree completely. Thank you all so much for listening to us blather on for these past few years. And, you know, Let's look forward to more blathering on about books and comics for years to come here, there, and everywhere. So, uh, yeah. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And thanks to Chris Jones for giving us this forum and Matt Rushing for asking me to join the show. Really appreciate it. But uh, it's been fun talking about literary treks and us babbling on. But it's not the only thing we've been discussing here on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. Like you're saying about JL, I remember at the time reading this, Rafi calling him JL, and I remember that feeling weird to me. Like you, the first time it was in the comic, and then I was like, JL, that's kind of casual. But like you said, she kind of talks to that. And But now rereading it, when I got to that, it just makes so much sense because I'm used to it now. It just seems so natural. But at the time, it felt a little odd. Earl Grey. This is that McCoy is still alive. Mm -hmm. And he goes and picks up McCoy. And Scotty and McCoy have adventures throughout the galaxy in their own run no. Then they go and find the Nexus and get, and get <laughs> Kirk back. And it's the three of them that go... Uh, and they go to Romulus, of course, as well, to help out Spock with the reunification. Yeah. And then they go to the Genesis planet, because obviously there's remnants of it after it blew up, and they find some Spock DNA, and they use some Borg maturation chamber to make themselves a mini Spock. But it goes wrong, so Spock is only, like, six inches tall. <laughs> Pocket yes. Spock. And... And McCoy can put him in his pocket all the time. Like, but he's, we'll call so him McCoy loves that. He's got a, yeah. a wee kind of lapel pocket. Yeah, I like that's a breast pocket. We'll call him Spocket. Spocket. Spocket <laughs> in McCoy's pocket. Uh, I like that. Okay. Primitive Culture. A look at history and culture 
through Star Trek. That whole title sort of feels like the the beginnings of what Roddenberry would do with with Q, and having all those play on Q basically, yeah. which I think I think had exactly. you had Mud come back, you know, more. It's almost a shame that Discovery hasn't picked up that, and and when they had Curious Harry Mudd, yeah, <laughs> exactly. They should have done that. They resisted the temptation for the cheap. I mean, that is, as I say, there is always a temptation with these things to go for the cheap pun. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's the right decision to, to resist. I don't know. Um, I think a cheap pun is the right call every time, Duncan, to be honest. The ready room. What does it mean to be artificial? And when you cross that barrier from being biological mm-hmm. to being artificial, but your your memories have been transferred, how much of who you are is the memory that you acquire over the course of your life and how much of it is the biological system of your body and that's what else is happening on trek.fm check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an apple user be sure to hit the subscribe button in apple podcasts on iphone ipad or apple tv or the desktop itunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published and please if you have the time leave us a star rating and written review if you're not an apple user though we've got you covered as well you can find our shows on google play music stitcher TuneIn, spreaker soundcloud windows phone youtube spotify in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the mp3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. I almost said Spotify again. (laughs) If you'd like to keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. And even though Bruce and I are no longer on Literary Treks, we'll be hanging around there to see what you have to say about this episode and future books and comics. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Find us on our Goodreads group because Dan and I will still continue to be there. Well, me more so than Dan, but... (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what is coming up for future shows. Plus, there's great conversations happening about the books and comics, so just search for Literary Treks and Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamutala, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and Casey Pettit for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. And also a personal thanks from both Dan and I to uh, you guys for here, here. supporting the show. So, Dan, 
by the time this episode comes out, you will be a married man. And then there may be conversations that come up where you guys start talking about, well, do we want to have kids? I don't know. But you have to consider, what if Dr. Ree were to deliver your baby and whisk your bride off to somewhere to deliver it while you're stuck on an island somewhere? And if you're on the island, where can we find you? (laughs) Wow. You know, 2020 has really turned into a crazy year. (laughs) Um, Wow. Yeah. No, I I don't know how I would react to that. But uh, yeah, you can find me on our other podcast, Positively Trek. Just search for Positively Trek wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk about all sorts of things from all over the Star Trek universe. You can find me personally on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I have a YouTube channel, Kurtrats Productions, where I make videos all about Star Trek. And I have a personal website, treklit.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. So, Bruce... When you're not piloting a scouter gig through a pod of squales onto the surface of an island because an asteroid has crashed into a planet and things are going crazy. 2020, man, it's nuts. That is. Uh, Where can we find you? Well, if I'm not doing that, then maybe I'm just like in a retirement home playing solitaire. (laughs) So, or you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. And now you know the origin of that handle from earlier in this episode. And you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast occasionally. I'm not on all the time, but I fill in every once in a while or come on as a guest co-host and so on and so forth. So I'm still lightly involved in that show. And uh, you can, of course, now you can always still find me in the Babel Conference. I will be there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And for our last time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.